0: Hi, it's just me, Nicola. Just before you listen to this episode, I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to every single one of you for listening to these stories each week. You are making my dreams come true. And if you are enjoying them, please, please subscribe and leave a review. It will really help us grow in the podcast world. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Inspire the Podcast with myself, Nicola Wills, our guest today is a self-taught stylist who began his career as a window stylist at Selfridges in London. He quickly began working with magazines and fashion houses before transitioning to celebrity clients. He is extremely influential and has an impressive list of clients, including Amanda Holden, Kylie Winogue, Jennifer Hudson, Beverly Knight, Paloma Faith, Nicole Scherzinger and Jesse J. Please welcome Carl Willett. Hey, hey, so welcome to the show. Thank oh you. Oh my gosh, I am so happy that you are here because I have followed your journey for probably about 10 years now. Crazy. And I have seen the rise and the growth and the transition. And we have tried to do this podcast, haven't we, Carl? Probably like six or seven times tried <laughs> to record it. Yeah. And every day, every time that we try to record it, I've got a voice note going. Nicola, I'm so sorry. But um I've got to go to Amanda Holden's house. She's called me up another day. Hi, Nicola. I'm so sorry. Nicole Scherziger needs a dress. I've got to go and sort her dress. And it's like, I just they are your people. That is who you are around because you have created this life and this success for yourself. So Carl, before we go to the like the the stars and the sparkles and the gowns, tell us where it all began.
1: Gosh, where's it all began? Well, 20 years ago is where it all began. I've been a stylist now for, it's pushing just 20 years, which to me in itself is phenomenal. I, I, You know, someone has a career that long and you kind of years go past, they just tick on. Um, But I do remember where it first started and it actually was pure chance, I guess. I worked in recruitment in London. I didn't really, I've always been a very ambitious guy but I've never really knew that there was a creative side of me that could actually then formulate into a career. So, you know, I was working in the the city in recruitment doing, you know, my nine to five went out Friday night, parted, Saturday, hangover, Sunday, hangover, like that was my life. And then one yeah. day I met my now husband, um, he was a dancer and he sort of just opened my eyes to the fact that actually I could, not retrain, but restart again, like press stop and take a leap of faith and try and see what was new out there. I was still 21. So I guess, you know, at 21, I think you're in a place where you are kind of like trying to work out still where you're at, what you want to do in the future. Um, But I had a great job at that point. I managed 100 temporary like secretaries, each day they were working for me with temp staff I had a company car laptop mobile like I had what people would say on paper was a perfect job great life and then I met him and it just it was a whirlwind moment I saved two months salary and I said to my mum and dad right I'm leaving like I'm just gonna hand in my notice I have zero idea what I'm gonna do but I just want to be something else and it was I knew it would be creative Um, but I literally left with nothing, no idea. I left, sat down, thought about it. I loved, um, before I was obviously working in the city, I had a Saturday job and I used to work in a sports shop and I was just an assistant in a sports job, did the tills. Here you go, there's your bag, thanks so much. But I loved watching the visual merchandisers and I used to help them out. Like I almost became a visual merchandiser without actually having the title or the pay bracket. But I just used to be like, oh, let me do it. I really love it. So I kind of thought, let me explore that. Back then, for those that would remember, there was a magazine called The Stage. Oh my God, yes. I loved The
0: Stage. I loved The Stage.
1: To flick through the back pages. Oh, there's a dancer job, a singer job. There's the theatre job. There's And I never even knew that these jobs existed. But I was just looking because um, Stephen had it, my partner. And... I saw, oh, there's a visual merchandiser for Selfridges. They're looking for a part time assistant.
0: And that was in the stage?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Amazing. There weren't many. There was literally that and probably a couple of others. But I was just like, let me try my luck. I'm a true believer of fake it till you make it. So I was like, right, got to get a new CV. They're not going to be interested in a recruitment consultant. So I reworded my CV. I changed a bit. You know, I didn't lie but I might have fabricated the (laughs) truth somewhat. Um, Brilliant. I believed in myself, and I think that's key. I was taught that growing up, to believe in your gut and to believe in your vision. So I was like, okay, I worked in retail for a few years. I've done some visual merchandising. Anyway, they took me on a two-week internship. So I literally got, I think it was about £30 worth of travel like it was so minimal but I was like it's cool we, I'll do this Would long story short two weeks turned into two years and by the end of that I was you know paid a full pay um check every time I was there I must have installed about maybe 20 different window schemes in that time
0: so in so you know in self is when you walk past at Christmas yeah. and it is amazing like I mean that is a Instagram opportunity itself were you doing that yeah. was that your job
1: Oh, but it's so, so funny. Fun. You you would see from the outside the glamour of that. Yeah. My God, it was graft. Because in Selfridges, you've got all your shopping layers and, yeah. and escalators up and down. The mannequins would be in the lower basement, below the basement. We'd have to get them, take them all the way up to the above where all the shopping <laughs> is. Then we'd dress them all, make them look nice. Then we'd have to carry them all the way down to the windows. Then they were like, pinned in by wires that we had to hide yeah. so no one could see yeah. them and I was literally part of the um like the fabric dressing so the the clothing so then there'd be set designers around us doing all the still life so you yeah. worked as a good team but you worked at night because again you can take things through the shop floor it was a policy so yeah, a lot yeah. of this was like night work behind the scenes. Proper hot and sweaty and then windows. You used to go in basically yeah. not naked, but more or less. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but I loved it. So if you it. were
0: walking past Selfridges at midnight, you'd see you in a thong. <laughs> I, I
1: wish. No, they, they, the they would always have like a black screen up when we did uh, window okay. changeover. Okay. But yeah, we were behind it. I mean, sometimes there was the odd occasion a mannequin would fall and then suddenly you're squashed against the window trying to hold the mannequin, not knocking the rest of the display. I mean... I learned everything from the girls I worked with there. Yeah. They were like, yeah. that's probably my my mentorship into the freelance world, that sort of adult survival guide they gave me because I was used to a, a nine to five structured salary job. Suddenly I was like, you know, oh, I can only afford this this week or I've got to be there till nine o'clock at night. You know, everything was suddenly, there was no parameters And that was odd, because I'm quite a militant, structured, like, mental state. Um,
0: You seem to have such a strong sense of self for someone who's 21. Where did that come from?
1: I think that's always been installed in me back then, even now, from my upbringing. I was very, very happy as a kid. I had a 2.4 family. There was my mum, my dad, me and my sister, my older sister, Um, We had a really tight family unit. So, you know, we always went to my nan's on a Friday night and we had dinner there. We had cake there. We played board games. It was never a TV night. We played ball games. We talked. Um, All my cousins would be there on a Sunday. Maybe my other family would be over. We'd have barbecues. I was very much nurtured to love and respect and to have confidence. But it wasn't a pushy nurturing. I would say I had quite a free reign. I wasn't told, this is what you do, this is how you do it. I was just, I suppose, quietly installed with confidence of, you know, in life you have to go out, work hard to achieve. My dad worked hard. My nan, when she grew up, used to tell me stories of doing three jobs, you know, put the kids to bed Should go out and do another cleaning job i was always surrounded by grafters and people that earned their money so i think from a young age i i had the paper round i had another charity round i did every month i had a saturday and sunday job i would work in the evenings i was always taught to go out and earn your money yeah if i needed something i'd You know, I could ask for it, but I never wanted to. I loved earning pounds, you know, 10 pounds. was like, woohoo. I I loved all of that. Um, So I think it was installed in me just from a natural upbringing. Yeah, my confidence wasn't about, because I've definitely struggled over the years with physical confidence or mental challenges, but I always felt safe. And I think I was lucky for that.
0: Yeah, I totally and utterly relate to that. You know, like my my background isn't glitz and glamour, but it's it is consistent. Yeah. There was never other, there was no dramas, it just it what to the outside world would look as very plain, very boring. Yeah. But what that gives you as a child is the ability to go, Well, I can do whatever I want because whatever happens, my mum and dad and my family are there. You know, absolutely. I could've absolutely and that is absolutely priceless because it's that security to be
1: free. Yeah. And I remember the day that I told my mum that I was going to jump ship and like start a new career. And I was sitting on the worktop in the kitchen at my mum and dad's house. And I was like, you know, I just I don't know why, but I just want to do this. And, you know, it could work. It might not work. And she just delivers those lines of, you know, have trust in yourself. We will support you. Go and do it. Don't look back. And I've, I think that is what I would do with my kids and my assistants and just people that surround me. I'm, If I wanted to change today, I would. I'd go, right, pause. Let me start a new career in construction. Like, I'm not scared of change. It excites me.
0: Yeah. And at that point, were you living in London with Steve?
1: So at that point, well, it was all sort of happened at the same time. Okay. So I met Stephen and then six months after we met, we moved in together. So fast. Very nice. Yeah,
0: that is fast. But especially being like a gay man in London at twenty-one, like the world is your oyster basically. Well, within you...
1: within that six months, I actually came out to my family. So actually, oh okay. Pre pre Stephen, I, you know, I I, it wasn't that I feared it. I think for a lot of young gay guys girls you know anyone that feels a bit different it's not sometimes always the fear of the reaction it's just how do I start this conversation it's that really nervous butterfly knot that you're like it's how do I tell him it's not that I'm worried to obviously you know my instinct kicked into my mum would deal with this better than my dad it made no difference to Eva but I don't know. There was something about it I felt more comfortable. Um, And I called my mum upstairs one day um, and I was sat on my bed. She was... I called her. I was literally like, mum, can you come upstairs? I want to talk to you. And she says even now, she was like, why don't you just come downstairs? I'm here. You can talk to me. I was like, no, you've got to come upstairs. And she sat on the bed. And I, at that point, had Stephen's modelling portfolio in front of me because I thought, how am I going to do this? And I was like, do you know this guy... (laughs) And I was like, and I didn't, it was almost like we're in unison. I said it, she answered it, we sort of knew. As much as the weight was instantly lifted, I was like, you can tell dad. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell him. Um, Yeah. And I think then it flooded through. Not one person turned around and was like, oh, I'm really surprised. (laughs) I was like, great.
0: Especially, yeah. Especially by the time you're what, 21. Yeah. You know, you can, did you always know in yourself that, you know, that you were gay or was that something that you actually, you um, saw Stephen and were like, Oh my God, this is a different feeling.
1: I know. I, actually, it's funny. I, I honestly would say I didn't. I yeah. had a girlfriend. I had a couple of girlfriends, but I had a long-term girlfriend for three years. Hmm. We were, she was part of my Saturday job working in the sports shop crew <laughs> and we had a great life, but yeah. you know, maybe living in Essex, working in Essex, we were in a bubble. Yeah. It felt right. I didn't necessarily question it until I started working in London. After my Saturday job, I was like, okay, big city, let's go get a career. And that was about 18, 19. And I I went to London. I think my eyes just opened and I started to think deeper. So maybe I would think things when I was younger, but I definitely didn't act on it or feel it was something I was missing. It was more a progression for me. I do believe some people do know from very young. Yeah. But I believe in individuality and I believe everyone's journey is different. Um, Mine just came, let's say, a bit later. And maybe that's what made it a bit harder to not come out, but because a lot of people would say they kind of guessed anyway. Yeah. But it was a different journey.
0: Yeah. And where did you meet, Stephen?
1: Oh, gosh. In a club.
0: I oh mean, God, we're talking yeah.
1: old school days where you go out in a club, Saturday night, dressed up, aftershave.
0: Okay oh, that was the Few best. drinks,
1: confidence, get on the dance floor. It was my, I actually, the funny story is it was my ex-girlfriend took me out to a gay club. She's like, I'll oh, come out, all my friends are there because she was in musical theatre. Um, we went there, I'd never been. Um, and she was, I said, oh God, look at that guy on the dance floor. And she's like, oh, I don't know who he is, but his friends with my best friend let me find out so it's almost surreal because she hooked me up with my now husband Um, wow but it was his 21st birthday it felt a special moment but yeah after it was six months and we moved in I look back now I know my journey I never look back with regret but was that fast if would I be pushing my kids into that probably not but you know it worked for us and and the rest is history i guess
0: but that is so amazing and especially that your friends around you they knew they knew what you needed probably more than you did they were like you know inviting you to the clubs like to see that this like open your eyes to this different world and you know I, i know a lot of um you know gay men don't go down that relationship route but i feel like what you and also my best friend, Stuart and Francis, who have also been on this podcast. Yeah. They have, which is quite rare, a longstanding, stable, beautiful relationship. But I feel like because of that, you know, they have, just like you, been able to fly. It's like the support that you had from your family then transferred over to Stephen. Yeah. And that kind of like solid foundation of home life has allowed you to just Spread your wings and fly.
1: I truly believe that as well, and I do believe everyone's course is so different. And you know, even though I'm, I can confidently say, even though I'm a gay man, I never label myself even. So I don't even think that I'm a Quite. gay man that's got married to a man that's done surrogacy and had two babies. Like I see myself as the same as my friends. And, you know, I I understand and see everyone in my world for who they are of course but I'm such a um, chilled label person like I don't mind who somebody is what they are what they believe in I love a bit like yourself I love to find out about people I love hearing difference in who we are but I don't believe anyone's journey any one person's journey is the same Um, and my support system yeah I was very lucky because i've got friends that weren't so lucky um same i was fortunate it's helped me become who i am and hopefully that will now just filter through to my family i feel like my purpose on this earth was bigger than my job my family my loved ones i i almost attract people that might need a bit of support It's, it's very odd my friends and so close friends say it all the time. Like it's almost like if I see an underdog, I'm gonna pounce on you and champion you till you win. I, I just got that desire to help yeah. someone that needs a break. Yeah, and maybe that's because you know I've got that foundation where I, I was okay, so I wanted yeah. to help someone else now.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like you see in others what you basically didn't have. Like you, well, you had everything that, yeah. and they're like they didn't have that i can pour it's like over pouring yourself into others to help to bring them up yeah
1: i was fortunate so now i want somebody else to receive some part of that
0: i love that that's so nice quite
1: deep so early on (laughs) (laughs)
0: honey we let we go deep i love the the deeper the better (laughs) so we are two years at selfridges yes you love it you thrive and is it at that point where you're like okay this is what i want to do with your with your life
1: not really (laughs) I'm (laughs) such a muddler at that at that point of life I would have gone any which direction I was willing to um try everything so Mm. the point of Selfridges was I met loads of freelancers so I was able to go oh what are you doing oh you're doing a photo shoot for still life products can I help can I work with you and I would go off and do that I would go off one of my Friends back then, she did a lot of photo shoots for Getty Images. So, I mean, gosh, I worked with pets, animals, children. We did like a photo shoot in a school with little kids. And the point of it was capturing moments of kids at school with teachers. Um, and for those who don't know, Getty Images is a website where you can literally Google and you can purchase imagery to support your marketing. So, it could be any kind of brief we were given. But that day I was like, oh, now I know why they say don't work with young kids. (laughs) Then we did a pet shoot and it was all these pets. I mean, trying to get little kittens to sit in their basket (laughs) so you could have a nice cute image was apparently my job. It was hell. (laughs) But it was such a good sort of way in to go. Mm. Okay, what do I like? Because this is some people have brilliant careers doing these jobs. I mean, I knew it wasn't for me that. Somehow I decided celebrity was. Um, But I met a photographer on, God, do you remember MySpace? Yeah. Gosh, I sound so old, don't I? I know. I love MySpace back then. (laughs) But I met a photographer. I loved his work. He's called Joseph Sinclair, who's like an insane photographer. His work is like another level and he's grown. But we started similar times. Okay. So we met him. He'll always say the story. I met him in Blackheath, I think, in a coffee shop. And as he walked in, he will always say, you just looked me up and down. And I I literally sort of did that. Not, I guess I caught myself out. I didn't do it judgy, but he was like, oh, that's such a fashion person. (laughs) Check it out (laughs) what I'm wearing. Um, But we had a great career. It was through him that I then met my first celebrity, um, Lisa Scott Lee from Steps. Um. And back then I was like, oh my God, like starstruck. Yeah, of course. You know, the first thing I ever do was a photo shoot. She was on, I want to say she was doing dancing on ice. So the point of the photo shoot was lingerie, swimwear, you know, less is more. And I was like, cool, let's uh, do this. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was absolutely a fish out of water. I blagged my way. Yeah, yeah, I'm a stylist. I didn't know about PRs. I didn't know how to loan clothes. I literally went to a shop, bought some stuff, looked at some fashion grads, got some stuff sent in, um, winged it, completely winged it. Smile, charm, believe in yourself, you'll get through it. That's my mentality. Um, And then I guess from there, it slowly progressed. I worked and did quite a lot of the gay magazines, like Shoots, for attitude, for Gay Times, there were some other magazines around at that time, and it was sort of male models in swimwear and underwear. And, you know, great. It, it was it was a good eye opener, but I was like, it wasn't for me. That I needed yeah. more than that. That wasn't yeah styling. more than just
0: like a pair of pants. Like that's yeah. not really styling. No, <laughs> yeah. Um, just for people that don't yeah. know, what is PR? Do so, you like
1: so PR in my terms, I'm talking about. Um, PR offices are the public relation offices in fashion. Basically, a designer, a big designer like Gucci will have an in-house PR person that us stylists go to to loan clothes. It's like our one point of contact. Email them, call them. We go in, pull something for our clients. But then there are some PR offices all over the world that house all the sort of more younger, smaller brands. So they could have something like 20 different brands in their showroom and I would go in and pick from all of those brands. So back in the day, I didn't even realise they existed. I I didn't know what I thought people did, you know. Um, So
0: you just went out buying stuff, basically. I
1: bought stuff. I I definitely did approach graduates, the people that were in the same world as me, just trying to start out. I was like, oh, loan to me, loan to me. But it was only swimwear and lingerie. (laughs) But... You know, you learn as you grow, I guess.
0: And also, how were you like meeting, you know, celebrities like Lisa Scott Lee? How, as your personality type, were you were you cool with that, Were you a little bit starstruck? What, how did you kind of cope? Um,
1: I think I was more. I don't. I'd never really been starstruck, but I was absolutely. I mean, my mum would kill me for saying it, but I was absolutely shitting myself. Like, you might want to bleep that out. But I was absolutely... No, love it. I, I was just so nervous and anxious because, to me, I put a celebrity way above my bracket. Um, Obviously, you fast learn that celebrities are still humans. They have the same problems. They do the same things as you. So it sort of simmered down, you know, maybe not with her, but when I started to then work with other celebrities, I learned just chill out. But I used to get quite a lot of anxiety... I guess worried of the outcome, worried that I was good enough because I still felt a bit blaggy. I knew my windows, displays, I knew my still life, but I didn't necessarily know how to tackle a human being that would actually criticise the clothes I was about to give them. Yeah, Mannequins don't or, talk back.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, I don't know if you still around now, but do you remember Heat magazine, like yeah. the worst dressed celebrity? Yeah. Like that, you know, I remember thinking, you know, as a stylist or whoever, like that's the worst place to be, right?
1: That, I remember when I first worked, I guess when I was building my brand and building my name, and I started working with Kimberly White from the Pussycat Dolls, that was my next sort of, uh, and that's when I thought I'd made it. I knew at that point it was my first turning point. Um, and I was working then, I soon met Paloma Faith, and I, I got put absolutely in the what were you thinking columns. And I remember the first couple of times, oh, no. I literally thought my career was over. Yeah, i li- I think course. you read that and you think the world has read it.
0: Yeah, Obviously, yeah, of
1: course. Obviously, I know it goes out to enough people, but I do believe in that saying, you know, yesterday's chip paper, uh, tomorrow's chip paper. Sorry, got that wrong. But it is, I think it's damaging in, quietly inside. It is damaging because you've put blood, sweat and tears into an outfit. That's so quick, somebody can go, oh, that's awful. Why did you put that hat with those shoes? Why did you put that bag with that coat? And even though you could think it was the best thing, and I always stood by this moral of, if my clients are happy, I'm cool. So you can keep posting that, I'm okay. As long as, I remember one client used to say to me, as long as they're talking about us, we're okay. And I kind of like that, because... As well, in media in particular, those articles was one person's opinion. You know, how important is that in life, really?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And now, obviously, we have Instagram. Like, everything is so quick. You don't have to wait till next week. It's like there we're seeing the outfit. And so, for example, how did you even get introduced to um, Kimberly Wyatt? Like that's, you know, she is a massive celebrity, especially back then, like the height of the Pussycat Dolls. Yeah. How did that kind of come about?
1: Well, she was coming over to the UK to do some solo pieces of work. I believe at that point working with producers and like maybe some TV opportunities. And a friend of mine who was a choreographer was working with her. And he, did, I th- I think that's the golden ticket to this industry is connections, communication, contacts. I don't believe at that stage I was the best stylist by far. I was a rookie working it out. But I I knew people and I was always flexible. I was always open. I was always willing. So I think people saw that driving me and knew that they could trust me. So this guy was just like, you know, I've got Kimberly Wyatt coming in. Um, would you be up for working with her? And I was like, uh, of course, when? Um, and I think it, the relationship grew really fast. You know, I I was obviously a fan growing up of the Pussycat Dolls. And I, I remember, same. Oh, right, Spice God, Girls Pussycat Dolls, you same. name it.
0: I just was like, that was literally my dream. I mean, I'm loving my life right now, but that would have been the ultimate. Being a Pussycat Doll would have been... I could have died. God to heaven, I'd have been happy.
1: I could see you actually as a pussycat doll. How about that? Oh, (laughs) Um, Look, actually, funny stories. So when I was trialling what I'm going to do whilst I was at Selfridges, I did a course at the London College of Fashion, which was a weekend course because I could only afford to do one day a week because I had to work. And it was a Saturday, and I think it was for about six weeks. It was only like six sessions, but it was based on fashion styling in the industry and i was just like let me see what it can do um dipped into my savings for that one and on my mood board was the pussycat dolls we had to create a mood board of what would be us as a style who would it oh, be okay it was the pussycat dolls gwen stefani it was these really cool you know flamboyant sexy style icons um So when I got then the opportunity, which was probably only a year or so after that, I was like, oh, my God, all my dreams have come true. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm I'm in. I'm made. (laughs) They've accepted me. Um, And we worked together for, I'd say, a good couple of years. And it was was brilliant because her life, I mean, it still is. She is so successful. And for me personally, an insane dancer. And probably she definitely has got the accolades for her dance, but I still feel was still underrated. She was so hot at dance. For me, obviously the best in the group. Um, and she can still do that leg up, you know. That know. is a lot.
0: I know, and she said three children. And Even when she was heavily pregnant, she was getting her leg up there. Exactly. I was like, oh my
1: God, you go, girl. Now that, that is somebody that works hard. Yeah. Um,
0: and so in that time with Kimberly. Was this when you then went when she was doing TV shows, like whenever we would see her on television, would you have dressed her? Is that how it works?
1: Yeah. So basically at that point, when she would come to the UK, she would come with a suitcase, but more or less they were her, you know, everyday clothes. So whatever she was scheduled to do in the UK, I mean, at that point, we were filming Got to Dance, which is a TV show. Yeah. that ran for I think three seasons. It was quite a, it was a brilliant show. And um Davina McCall was on it, Ashley Banjo. It was a great lineup, really cool, fun um people. So I'd style her for that. But then off the back of that, she might do a magazine shoot or she might do red carpets. She did a campaign with Lipsy, um, which I then styled. So it was almost like all these extras that were coming to me were allowing me to grow my myself further. it was allowing me to explore the industry further. so I knew at that point it was always celebrities I knew no one day would be the same and that's what I craved you know same but different you had the relationship of being close to a client but you had the fun and spontaneous you know oh next week we're doing this this week we're going here we're flying here I remember one time with Kimberley, I'll never forget it. My first experience of paparazzi and mind-blowing. I can even picture it in my eyes to this day. We walked out of um, the Mayfair Hotel and when people say they're blinded by the lights, I always used to think, yeah, okay, get over it. It's not that bad. Oh, wow. (laughs) You could... I was behind her with her manager and my assistant There were so many flashes that you cannot physically see where you are stepping. So you couldn't see where the cab door was because it was so crazy. So when you see these celebs sort of doing that or people trying to get someone out of the way, it is legit that you cannot see what's in front of you. So it is back then was where there was no regulations. So you could do the up the skirt shot. You could do the let me stop the cab. Let me put the camera in the door. Let me open the door and get in. It was, I mean, they were scary times. And I was yeah. starting my career. So for me, I was like, is this normal? Like these upskirt yeah. shots. It was, now you look back, I cannot believe it was ever a thing. But it, I remember experiencing it and thinking that these are still human beings. They, they've they given themselves their career, but, you know, it only goes a certain way.
0: Yeah, it, that is disgusting. And you can see why, you know, like people were pushed too far, you know, and get to the point of where it's like, you know, the rage behind it, the anger that that must be. be. And so when did that change then? I didn't even know that. It's like, I'm not in that world. But so did that, a regulation come in to change that? Well,
1: I can't remember when it was, but there was basically, there was, I mean, I don't know the legal terms or jargons, but there was a lot that went through the courts because I think when the whole Me Too thing was happening, there was just so much about we're missing the part of, you know, these are not necessarily even women, but th- in this moment, these are women that also have a human right to say no. And for some reason, because they're a celebrity and apparently they, you know, are hungry for everything, that that line is so blurred. Yeah, 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 totally. Everything's up on the cards. But yeah. I just remember seeing it and experiencing they would shout so much, you know, you all you could see was lights and Not abusive, but loud shouting. And it was all, over here, over here, me. No, I said this. So I can understand how it would feel threatening for anyone. But, you know, I'm glad that that's changed. Back then, a picture, you got the right picture. You could have earned tens tens of hundreds of thousands. So there was, you saw why people were doing it. Because they were allowed to sell pictures that much. Like, there was almost this... Real negative um it's hierarchy. Like a
0: toxic, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can. I remember. I remember London at that time yeah. when you know the Mayfair Hotel was literally you just yeah, the place. You know, you, were, you it was the place to be, wasn't it? Like I'd go there and hang out in, in the cocktail bar, <laughs> thinking, "Oh, I hope someone spots me." <laughs> it was crazy, is not it? it? It was crazy, but and you do that. have Did that have a big effect on Kimberly? Can you remember?
1: Um, or was she just used to it? I think she's a, I mean, excuse the pun, but she's a cool cat. You know, she yeah. she's a very powerful, strong-minded woman. She's very confident. So I think she, one, knew herself well enough that she knew, um, she's experienced enough already. She was a worldwide star. Probably London maybe was small fish compared to going certain other places paparazzi-wise. But, you know, She never asked for it It came with the job So I think there was an understanding there of Yeah I understand it But don't push me too far And I feel like that's the case with any of my clients You know that was on the cusp of where reality stars were becoming something Like right at the beginning Where they you know first did Big Brother or Shipwrecked You know those sort of shows were coming out And reality stars were becoming you know those mini celebs and i think it was more i guess it's hard it's hard to say because i don't know but it felt like they those when you come out of reality you almost need that exposure yeah
0: you you're, you want it yeah. Des- you,
1: yeah you kind of need it to grow your brand and to sustain it whereas when you've got this product you're a singer you're a dancer you know it's part and parcel of the job but you don't necessarily crave that yeah at yeah all. yeah
0: yeah, yeah, totally. It's more alien. Yeah, and just uh, for all of our listeners, including me, as a stylist, so you're gonna, you've got a, you've got Kimberly's roster, right? So you yeah. know what she's about to do. So then, do you then literally go and shop for her? And and by that stage, do you are you buying things at this point, or are you getting given everything by brands?
1: Um, that's so interesting you say because actually, no, everything would have been given. There's a certain. Okay. There are levels of celebrity where, you know, sometimes it takes a moment for brands to buy into you. So you might be buying the odd thing or you might be loaning from, let's say, lesser brands, uh, start out brands just to show that you are a fashion person. You know, it's a process. Whereas when you're international, it's 90 percent a given that there's enough brands that are going to loan to you um, straight off. So with Kimberly, everything was loaned. She was so experimental with fashion that it was exciting for me. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, funnily enough, I was going into a PR office, one of my friends, um, and they had they were one that had various, you know, different um brands. And I was chatting away to my friend. She was only one of the assistants at that point. And I was like, Oh, I'm you know, I'm looking for more clients now. I really like one doing I don't know what how to obtain anyone else. And she was like, Oh, have you ever heard of Paloma Faith? She was in the studio the other day. She might be looking for a stylist. She's really cool. I think you'd love her. And we saw sort of connected. I was like, okay, who is Paloma Faith? And I Googled her and I was like, oh, this girl, she's a bit of me. Yeah. Um, and I lit this is another one of those fake it till you make it moments. And I don't mind saying this <laughs> blatantly. But I Googled her and I was like, okay, she's worn this person, that person, that person. I'm going to, I found out her management. I wrote them an email and I was like, I have access to all these brands. Cause I was like, (laughs) I know she loves them. I also have access to all these brands. And I was like, yeah, give me a shot. Let me trial something. Let me do a mini shoot. Let's just see if we get on. I'd love to work with her. I was very confident, um, whether they would accept that, take that, I had no idea. But I did mm. get an email back saying, oh, you look right for us. You know, let's chat. And then that was mine and Paloma's beginning. And yeah. we worked together for 10 years. Amazing. But I was always drawn to these and still to this day. Powerful women, strong women, confident women. Um, I don't want to say eccentric because I hate that word. It reminds me of like old and, and like crazy. But, you know, somebody that is experimental
0: yeah just a bit out there
1: yeah 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 everyone can wear simple i like somebody Mm -hmm. that's gonna take a risk that's gonna flirt with fashion Mm -hmm. that's going to push the boundaries when someone says no we say yes you know i like to drive difference i don't like to sit in a box and I've, i've been put in boxes and i fight to get out of them because for me i don't think that is experimental enough for me as a stylist even at 40 years old um, <laughs> you know
0: yeah totally and what I loved and th- something that we were talking about um before the show yeah. is that you so for example you know you working with Paloma you weren't just her stylist you believed in her as a as like a almost like her biggest cheerleader weren't yeah. you? you were with her on that journey to grow her career because in that 10 years you saw you took her from where she was to the huge international star she is just tell us a little bit more about that
1: well let's not let's not not make it clear that she this this woman had swag before I even came around like she was already doing her thing she was already you know coming of age with her music and and everything and I guess what I then brought to the table was how we can differentiate her look and evolve her brand awareness so let's say when I started she was a big burlesque girl so you know she loved burlesque she loved vintage and that was so new to me I was all about big designers and you know young designers so it was almost like a marrying of two creative minds and how would this work and some of our most iconic work was when it just exploded together. Yeah. Her album covers, you know, she'd have all she would always have an idea. So with Paloma, across her whole career, she has been the driving force. Extremely Amazing. independent and extremely determined and aware. I think then all that enables me to do is go, right, how do I sprinkle the dust around this and really enhance it more? You know, she'd give me a brief and then I'd run with it. If she wanted a big gold dress, I got her a huge gold dress. If she wanted a real sexy mermaid gown, I got her a ridiculous one. We turned up to a Dolce & Gabbana show in Milan. And I remember at the time we were there with Poppy Delevingne and some other celebs. And even at that point, I was a bit naive and I was just a bit like, cool, who are you? Oh, hi, Poppy. Like it was... I wasn't starstruck by models by anyone, um, but we put her in this huge vintage Dolce gown. It was a fishtail, gorgeous, long, patent opera-length gloves, a patent Philip Tracy hat. We went full designer, full on. I remember when she walked onto the runway to get her see, people were just like, "Who is that?" Yeah, and that was how we carved our fashion career together. Because people knew that if Paloma was turning up, she was turning up and she was going to make a moment and she would bring you the press and she would, you know, be her authentic self, but she wasn't ever going to be something you could predetermined. So love her. I, I definitely would say I've traveled the world with her. I've loved, I loved every minute. You know, we went to Tokyo, Milan, we went all over Europe. It was an experience that I would say I cherish. I would l- continuously love to travel, not always does my job allow it now because a lot of my clients are u k or european based, but you know when you go to trips and you're fully looked after it's it's a it's an amazing humble pinch me moment,
0: yeah, it's like you're actually. Living the life of a celebrity but actually not being the celebrity yeah. because you get to see everything and have that experience but without the the worry that you've got to do the show or that you've got to show up. Yeah. You're in, oh, amazing. But then do you know
1: the funny thing you say That is so true. But then I wonder sometimes if I'm more worried than they are because I don't want to miss the point on anything I deliver. So if we're doing a photo shoot, I want that outfit pristine and I'm going to panic until... It's taken, the photo, red carpets. I am literally going, okay, that dress zip better stay together. That hemline better <laughs> stay up. Those diamonds better stay in the ear. Like, there are so many unique sort of worries that you're like, okay, that is a heavy diamond on your ear. We've we've taped it. Like, we have all these tricks, stylists. We tape extra tape where you wouldn't believe it existed. Just to oh make my God. sure... Oh, tell me. Tell looks me. ...looks so the same. Well, one funny time actually, it's funny now. It wasn't funny then. Um, we were doing a TV show, and it was with Paloma, and um, literally maybe 10 minutes before we were due to go on air, um, the back of the zip at the back of the dress, just from the middle, started going and then before you knew it, completely came apart. So the zip just broke, and it was Gone. live yeah. TV. So me and my system were like, quick, thread. And Adele just started sewing from the bottom. I was just holding it together because we needed the tension because we wanted it to be skin tight. We were in the toilet. Producers at the door. Come on, we need you now. We need you now. Paloma like, I'm chilled, guys. It'll be fine. You just keep going. The anxiety levels are (laughs) through the roof. All then you're thinking. So she gets on stage, completely sewn up the back. Let's not reveal that. Don't turn around. And you're just sitting there the whole time going, please stay together. Please stay together. Because when it's live, it's yeah. scary.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it all sounds so amazing and so exciting. And have you ever ever had any moment where you haven't enjoyed it or you have been so stressed that you're like, this is not worth it?
1: Yeah, many. I think people have this preconceived idea that fashion, even though it's a cliche to say, is all fun, glam, glitz and, you know, designer. And actually the, that's 10% of our job. And when it happens, it's great. But like the negatives are all the behind the scenes stuff. It's so, I go slightly off tangent, but I'll get back. The, the hardest part of our job is everything that happens before. The achieving nowadays, the bar is set so high that what we used to do five years ago, even we have to do twice as hard now because the world has changed so much. Um, I find Demands are really hard now because you you obviously have multiple clients that you have to maintain, keep happy, you know, at the same level. Like I, I treat all my clients equal, let's say, like they deserve me. I never send an assistant to do a job unless I pre-organised it with a client or it's very black and white. Like I believe that my clients book me, so therefore I'm going to turn up And if that means I have to minimalise my client list, I will always. Um, Yeah, I went on a tangent there, I forgot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I was asking you, what was, what's like a hard bit about your job or that you just don't really like or that's made you just want to quit?
1: I think the the hardest part of the job is the mental stress. Because sometimes you can work so hard and still not get that result. Yeah, and people don't really know that because it's not the side that we want to show people because if we show them that side, they may not have faith in us. Like if we show a client sometimes our weaknesses, we're scared we won't get booked again or we're scared that they'll judge that as, "Oh, you're not good enough anymore."
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And
1: I find that really difficult. Maybe yeah. over the years now I I've, I've found it manageable. But I would say I've definitely had mental strains over my course. I've had moments where I've broken, where I've cried, you know, after a job, I've just broken, cried. Um, I would say the lowest parts. I remember once in, in back in my old house, I had my, uh, we weren't married, but my partner was there, and my sister. And I was just like, I just can't go into work today. I woke up and I was like, I can't do it. I can't cope. Mm-hmm. And it was, them looking at me going, what's what's wrong? We don't understand. And I'm like, it's because I hide it. It's because you internalize yeah. the fear of telling someone in case they think you're not good enough. Yeah. And I was in my safe space so I could break down. And I literally, from that moment onwards, I canceled all work with a particular client because I just found it wasn't good for my mental health. It was damaging who I was. And that was maybe about six years ago um, because every client has different needs and different um, I guess pressures so you can understand them once you get to know your clients well and I would say this particular client would put everything on you to the point where you couldn't achieve any of it and by talking to them about it was a negative what well, you weren't good enough and I saw it happen to people and I didn't want it to happen to me
0: yeah yeah it's like you're the therapist the boyfriend yeah. the girlfriend the stylist the hairdresser the everything yeah. and I totally get I can really see that in that industry you can't show any vulnerability because that would be weakness yeah you know because it, you know, it's it's fashion you've got to be there like you're Like you're like the the guy that comes and makes everything perfect and then you leave. So to have any kind of like, oh, God, I'm just not having a very good day today. It's like, ew, get him out of my space. Yeah.
1: And also I feel like one thing I've learned with clients, not necessarily even celebrities, but clients is pressures are so high for them. You also don't want to burden them because they're already got their own things that are challenging to keep them where they want to be. So I feel like it's sometimes this real, you know, uh, vicious cycle of if we were maybe all just open, then we would be more happy, we'd be more calm. Sometimes we've all got these inner anxieties of, oh my God, I've just said yes to that and it's impossible, I can't do it, but I can't say no because if I say no, I'm going to get in trouble or if I say no, I might not work tomorrow. I don't necessarily believe that anymore, but yeah. I've I had a good probably three-year block in my career midway where I literally didn't know if a way to do it anymore. I didn't know if I could yeah. mentally do it anymore. And I was exploring what would I be, though. If I wasn't a stylist, I don't know what I'd be anymore. Um,
0: and was that really linked to kind of that one experience with that one person that then kind of tarnished that for you?
1: Um, I guess so. I guess at that point nothing was good enough so it didn't matter if I did the best job in the world it was still not enough and I was receiving that all the time and it was something you know that um, that wasn't necessarily their fault and I do believe that I know that I actually know that it was the pressures of this industry and it was my my feelings it wasn't necessarily somebody else wouldn't have felt that or gone through that but at that point I was insecure about myself so I didn't have the okay. confidence in myself to be like that's cool they're just having a bad day that's cool I know I did a good job they just you know they, they they need more
0: yeah and how then did you switch that how did you give yourself confidence to know that they're just venting and it's not actually personal
1: Um, I I actually think my support group of friends and family, I I didn't learn that through my job. I learned that through, you know, balling it to your partner or to your mum and then reminding you that life is bigger and this is purely a moment and this is purely just part of what you do. And I do believe in life, if we always think we can just do that, we're crazy. You know, life is full of road humps and... It is a roller coaster. And I think once you learn about yourself, how to combat those highs and lows, yeah. then you are able to cope with any drama, anything. Yeah. And nowadays, I don't, yeah, you know, I can laugh things off. I can, I'm so Mr. Chill. Most people that know me would be like, you're so chilled. You're so relaxed all the time. Like we're all stressed, pulling our hair out. And I'm just like, because I've, I've learned that it's going to get me nowhere. And I've learned that actually sometimes you've got to take a step back and look from the outside because we're so in the moment all the time. We're so quick. We've got- and
0: you just feel like that is the most important yeah. thing in the world. Yeah. When you just zoom out, you're like, oh, my God, it doesn't, it doesn't even matter. It, no one actually cares. And
1: it's so funny. Every single job I still do to me is the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. So even saying all of that, I look at a job. And then I'm I'm all in it, and then next day I'm working another job with another client, and I'm like, oh, it's that's gone now, and it's like, but it was my everything, you know. We're prepping for um, Britain's Got Talent at the moment. The finals looks with Amanda Holden, and it's my everything. It's consuming my whole brain. It's like gowns, gowns, mini dresses, jumpsuits, you know, embellished, neons. Oh, we? Yeah, it's it's a full on, and I'll be at work consumed. I'll go home on Google. I'll be on social media. I'm constantly switched on. When it's a big job, any job, but when it's a big job, my husband is saying, put your phone down. My parents (laughs) are saying, put your phone down. But I'm like, I can't. Because I love what I do. I don't do it nowadays because I'm pressured. I do it because I'm immersed. Like, I want to be... Perfection, I guess, is true, but I also understand that we don't know what perfection is, and one person's opinion of it is very different to someone else's. Um, however, saying all of that, an interesting point, I think, being a stylist, I always know and I always say to people, when that gown walks in the door, I know when it's the one amazing. Um, Yeah, recently I did the job, the King's Coronation with Nicole Scherzinger. And I n- always knew that was the gown. And did sh- and she... And
0: so how did that, like, just talk us through? Because we all have seen that, you know, that gown. And as she did a reel, didn't you, of all the different ones. But did does she get to try them all on and have a decision herself? Or is it you have a little look, but you always know that she's going to have
1: that one? Well, she's... I mean, she, again, very confident. She knows what she wants. A, a strong-minded female. And that's why I'm drawn to them always yeah. in life. Um, she knew the, the look, the the image, the final fantasy that she wanted to create. So she gave me that brief. I ran away of it. But she, that was her top three. One of her top threes, that gown. Um, but there was others that she loved. And I remember, however, whatever reason we got to me going, no, please, I think this is the one. Royal blue is the colour, the coronation. You know the king everything and then when she wore it after the performance she literally texted me and was like that was your gown you knew that was right and it worked so oh my
0: god how amazing and also your phone book oh (laughs) nicole says you just text me i mean like
1: that's like dreams it is interesting actually because i sometimes think yeah your my phone book is full of various you know yeah well known people and their their details but i'm such a i've learned through my career that i can only do this job being as confidential as i am yeah so anybody that gives me you know all their details it's so confidential to me and so many times people ask me oh what are they really like oh but can't you tell us and i'm just like that's suicide that's suicide of my career and suicide of who i am Yeah. Like, you know, I love my clients. I only sort of work with people that I um, adore and that I believe in and that I feel safe with and I feel excited about. Um, I'm at a point in my career where I guess I can pick and choose.
0: So do you turn people down now? Yeah.
1: (laughs) That sounds ruthless. No. But but I I guess the simple answer is, is, yeah, so... I absolutely do. At this stage in my career, I think I got to a place where I understood turning down clients isn't a negative. It's not a bad thing. Um, I don't ever want to have a client list that is unmanageable where I'm spread so thin that I can't really do the job that my clients need. So I guess Hmm. I've become a niche within myself. So, And also I believe whilst my style aesthetic is very vast... I love styling different kinds of characters. Yeah. I also don't want to spread that to the point where, again, I can't, with my team, achieve the level that certain people need. Also saying that I don't like my roster to be too similar, where, you know, I'm double layering some of the looks.
0: Yeah, yeah, like
1: If you look at my roster of girls, it's very eclectic and it's because... I know how to dress them individually. There are some stylists where they have a signature, so they, they their clients look quite familiar. I don't really like that way of working because I like to keep fresh. And for me, I like difference. But I turn people away, I think, because I'm protective of my brand. Yeah. And also yeah. maybe because I'm at the point now where I believe... I, I, I want to say this where it doesn't sound big-headed... But I they like to feel come. like I, I can um, uh, be aspirational. Like, oh, my God, yeah. you're working with Carl Willett. Oh, my God, I would love... Not, not only because my years of experience and how I treat clients and how I nurture clients, I don't want to be obtainable to everyone. But that doesn't mean someone's starting out. Like I said earlier, I'll put a punt on anyone new in the industry. You don't have to have even got a following. If I like your vibe... An attitude. I'm there, you know. Love, love
0: that. <laughs> Who of all the people that you have styled, yeah. have you ever had? Like so far, do you feel? Oh my god, that is the biggest person that I've been with so far. Um,
1: I don't know if big's the answer because my dream is always to style. Um, I was going to say, well, my dream always was just is and was to style. Uh, Gwen Stefani, Mary J. Blige. Once I tick them two off, okay. I don't care what I do, I can do the opening of the new post office. If I could just tick that box, I'm happy.
0: So they're, they're your, like, vision board women?
1: They're just part of my my house, I guess. My house of Carl yeah. Willett. You know, I grew up with their music. I grew up with their style. I've followed them for years. You know, to me, they are my dream. But, you know, I've worked with international people. I've worked with, you know, people that I would say are bucket list tick boxes. Mm. But I strangely, my honest answer is I treat everyone the same. So I don't really feel like, you know, when I work with the likes of Jennifer Hudson, she's like insane superstar for me. But I wouldn't treat her any different to any one of my clients because actually I'm not drawn to success or I'm not drawn to how many followers you have or how big you are, I'm genuinely drawn to the person. Yeah. And the vibe. And
0: there's definitely through the women that you have and still do style, yeah. there is definitely a theme <laughs> of like that kind of boss babe yeah. queen attitude, I love that, isn't boss
1: there? Boss babe.
0: <laughs> boss. They're like they you look at them, you know, Amanda Holden, Paloma Faith, Nicole Scherzinger, um you know all of these women, Jennifer Hudson. They have. They know who they are. They believe yeah. in themselves. They've achieved success. And yes, of course, you know they are talented in their own thing. But it's so much more than that.
1: Absolutely. And that
0: that energy. Oh God. I mean, this me, I can look this That is what I love. I just love that. And, and that's why we're drawn to each other because we both see that. And 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 and. But also, I can just like you can. I can meet someone who doesn't really know who they are or what they're doing but they've got that queen energy somewhere within them and you just love to draw it out of them and like help them rise to see their full potential but the women that you work with they know their full potential and and that's the difference I,
1: I always look at myself as I'm there to enhance something that is already working and living I love to take someone from a level and then enhance that you know I'm not I'm not really a good stylist just to take on to wade in the same water. If you want me and I want to work with you, it's because I see that there's still a journey to go. So I'm that sort of stylist that I'll look at something and be like, I love this, but I want to show you this. And that's kind of how I push out of comfort zones. I, I believe fashion is fun. I don't take it seriously. That's a good point, you know. I don't believe in trends. I I use them and work with them, but I believe in dressing the person. So I believe in body type, I believe in skin tone, I believe in culture. I believe in enhancing what the what the client is as opposed to oh the runway says do this it won't work on you but let's do it anyway yeah
0: yeah yeah and that's when they that's when you see these people walking the red carpet looking and not like they're in their own skin because they're not wearing clothes that are suitable to their body type it doesn't look for example i'm like five foot two you know curvy i can't wear some like drop waist hanging off me thing because I would just look ridiculous you know and that's what I love like you dressed women as women yeah don't you you really did you learn that like did you learn all about is that part of styling like the contours and the body shape and what's this like is I that right? totally
1: did learn actually all about body shape and what suits bodies and what you know how to work you know like you said if you're short I know how to take that skirt length to the right place the heel height to the right place, the invisibleness to enhance your leg length. Suddenly you are five foot nine, ten, not through surgery, but through visuals. Like I understand, but I learned it through, like I'm also a firm believer of you learn on the job. So I'm somebody that if I take on an assistant, I'll throw you in the deep end. There's no, oh, let's be comfortable and learn the ropes theoretically. At school, I was always, I loved making things i loved using my hands visual i was artistic um i wasn't very good i wasn't really a theory type person i wasn't good with books i was good with learning on the spot so throw me something and let me try so i was like that with fashion so i you know i've dressed women from a size six up to a size 24 and no woman's the same um and i need to dress women of that spectrum to understand difference and change you know I don't fear anything if a new client comes to me out of my regular zone I'm like brilliant now we've got something new to learn yeah I'm always learning I don't feel like in styling it stops because the world keeps changing and uh you know body awareness keeps changing and sustainability keeps changing that you almost You're constantly trying to, you know, understand what's next and and see it before it happens.
0: Yeah. Have you really noticed that with the kind of the shift in how women see themselves? You know, back in the back in the day, it was like if you were not thin, there was no opportunity for you to even be successful or be seen. And it sounds crazy to even say that now. Yeah. You know, whereas now it's like we are everyone is celebrated at every size has that affected your styling did you have you seen that in a positive way
1: well that's that's the interesting thing because I always styled like that anyway so for me I'm always a bit like or I always was like well come on guys you need to like speed up now I'm there already I never saw I had clients that were out of the sample size from day dot so you know when we were talking about PR most PR offices way back and and a lot still now, the sample of clothing they'd give you would be a size 8. So if your artist or client was a size 12, you had a problem. Mm. And, you know, when I first started out, I had a multiple sizing of clients. So I already had to think outside the box. I was already like, come on, guys, I need bigger samples. Um, So I think when it then started to filter through the media... I was a bit like, well, brilliant, about time. But I already went through that struggle of trying to get brands to understand that not everyone is going to fit that model. But it's how you dress someone. A lot of my clients used to be like, oh, I thought she was a size 810 anyway. And it's like, yeah, because I know how to dress a woman well. I know how to contour the body. I'm a big, my, one of my secrets is undergarments. Most stylists are on board with that, but not all. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a size 6 to a size 24. Your undergarment is the foundation of what those clothes are going to look like on you, you know.
0: And do you mean like a Kim Kardashian, sucky your waist in, lift your bum up kind of contraption?
1: I mean, I love Kim, but obviously that's the extreme version. But yeah, it's like yeah. a good support underwear. You know, it's no good wearing a bra that's got, you know, loads of frills or loads of bows, because you're going to see it impacting on the the garments. Mm. It's no good wearing a pant that is ill-fitting. The worst thing I see, which is probably at the beginning stage, in 90% of my women is the wrong bra, the wrong underwear. You know, it's the first thing we talk about. Um, And it is important to smooth every line because our natural bodies don't suck into this perfect shape. You know, you have to form that. And we're not talking about, everyone's got to be sucked in no i'm just talking about streamlining the body so when you put the clothes on everything looks really beautiful and smoothed out yeah it's it's a big secret
0: or not so anymore
1: but yeah not so anymore anymore. but the funny thing is a lot of women won't do it because actually it's really uncomfortable so unless you're going to an event why do you want to do that every day
0: yeah do you know what my secret is go on and i'm gonna (laughs) <laughs> is I never wear underwear.
1: Really? Come on. <laughs> mm,
0: honey, I just well I've got I've got implants, so my boobs kind of like stay up anyway and they're quite small now. But I never wear knickers. I mean I have a little skirt on right now, so I do have knickers on at the fear of like, <laughs> you know, you I don't want to like flash anyone. But in a normal day-to-day life, I just don't wear it. Um, And do you know where that's come from, being a dancer? Yeah. When you're like, as a dancer, you've got your fishnet tights on and your leotard on, there's no room for knickers because they're going to give a horrible line. Yeah. And I just learned that. And now it's just like, my husband's like, do you want to put some pants on? I'm like, "Mm, no. (laughs) That is brilliant. you're actually going out of the house with no knickers on. I'm like, well, you no one can see. But, you know, but yeah, that is, I just...
1: Honestly, the amount of times that we've done that with clients, yeah. again, no one knows, but it's no like if you knows. wear knickers, you're going to see it's better to hide them as as in it's better to not wear them, and we put illusion like netting over public areas so you can't see in. And I do that. <laughs> I mean, you've you've seen a lot of obviously my my workmanship, my mind is high glamour. So I like yeah. couture, I like high-end, I like extroverted gowns, see-through gowns, voluminous. And a lot Posh. of the time, a l- there's, there's nakedness. But you can hide that well. There's no, room,
0: <laughs> there's no room for a, you know, a knicker under that gown because it's just, they, I, I totally get That gown get is that.
1: pulled so tight, there is no room for a thong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And like that, but I love that world. For some women, it's all about, Comfort and feeling, you know, like just easygoing. I, I'm all for the glam life. Now, don't get me wrong. The second I get home, I, the first thing I do is a makeup wipe and a, um, my clothes are off. And I've got my—I would love to say loungewear, but it's definitely not. It's more like my, you know, pink frilly pajamas that I've got on when I'm at, when I'm at home. Love it. But when I leave the house, I want to feel done and ready for any occasion and then and I think that's really like helped me because then whenever you know you don't know what's going on and know you're gonna who you're gonna bump into or or what might happen in that day so I don't want to be in a situation where I think oh shit I wish I'd done my makeup or I wish I'd have just actually put some half decent clothes on I want to feel prepared and ready and I feel that's really helped me in my in my life and in my journey I'm like showing up like it's you know red carpet every day.
1: I totally get that. And do you know why I think so empowering? I think a lot of, and it's not just, doesn't st- settle with just women, you know, people in general. Um, when you walk out that door, you have to be at your most confident. Now, whether internally you're going through, you know, really insecure, anxious, anything could be happening internally. You, a lot of the time in our life, when we walk out the door, we don't always need or want that to be shown or seen. And I feel like your war pain is not, by getting plastered with makeup or anything like that it's confidence in what you wear how you hold yourself how you walk and that transcends men women you know non-binary every aspect of a human being that is out there I feel confidence is you allowing yourself to be your authentic self yeah and a lot of the time we cowered away from that I mean I'm the worst person in the world I'm the stylist that will throw anything on Because I don't think about myself. I've got to think about everyone else, the clients. (laughs) But I believe you should be walking out of that house in the outfit you wish to die in. Because why leave it? Why wait until you die to wear the fabulousness? Or why wait till the wedding, the birthday? I so agree. Go out and make a moment every day. The people that I love in the street are the ones I look at and I'm like, you've just caught my eye not because you're trying to but just because you are living yourself and your life is you
0: yeah and it's not saving that outfit till one day yeah it's making that day today to put that outfit on and I just I that is literally what I live for one of the reasons I actually moved here to Ibiza I mean not the main reason but I remember going to the school gate when my children were very little yeah and um you know and I'd be ready for the day and I'd pick them up at three o'clock and people would be like, oh, oh Nicola, what have you come as? Oh, What have you been right. doing today? Uh, you know, and they would be there, like barely brushed their hair, not a scrap of makeup on, which is also fine, which is also fine. Yeah. But I would never judge them. I wouldn't be judging them like, oh, what are you? You know, I would just be like this. Just allow me to be here in my, yeah. you know, whatever I was wearing Um. And I'll allow you to be there, but don't, don't make me feel like I shouldn't be here in this outfit showing up this way yeah. because you're not, you know, and, and it was a real eye-opener. I said to Ben, I was like, these women, you know, like they're not nice to me. Like, yeah. I'm just the same as them. We just have kids in the same class. And then when I moved to be there, you know, the stalking down the road, I was like, oh my God, these are my people. they've they've got got an outfit on that they just you can see that they're like they've chosen it it's what they love to wear and they're wearing it every single day and it's it is actually really really liberating because I've allowed myself you know I love clothes and fashion so much but I've stepped into my true authentic kind of who I want to be not just every so often every single day like that you know that that staying of like life is a runway
1: yeah But it's like you found your tribe. And I think the key point where you said there was, you know, just because that's how you are, you wouldn't have judged them mums. But and that's why I think I try to educate people in life. Like I believe everything's a runway for a moment. I believe, you know, okay, like I just said, I don't stand by always myself. But if I'm talking to anybody, I'm like, you know, whatever your make an effort is, make that effort every day. Because it's going to make you feel fabulous. And it doesn't matter your level of what that means. I just feel like we're walking in around in an age now, in a world now where there's so much more weight on our shoulders that actually the engagement of somebody appreciating you has come less and less. So walk out to make that moment. And trust me, I see it received all the time. My my best thing, are the the you know, the little old ladies that walk around town full glam. You know, oh,
0: that will be me. That
1: they rocked way back in the, you know, fifties. And I'm like, yes, they they believe in waking up and making an impression for themselves. They're not doing it for us youngsters, but they're doing it because they have pride. And I feel like that's the little bit that was lost through lockdown actually. That this lounge we living has been taken on by all of us, even myself. I'd sooner be comfy now. I've got fabulous shoes I never wear because, you know, I'd be more comfy in a a trainer. But I love seeing people walking around that are authentically glam. Not because it's for everyone, but because for me, that's where I get all my inspiration from, looking at, I'm a big people watcher. I could sit in a shopping market and just literally watch people and I get inspiration from every kind of person.
0: Absolutely, same here. And just, you know, we've covered your career yeah. and I know, you know, you've got, you've got you're flying in every angle in, in that aspect. And, you know, it just, these people that are waiting in the wings to be with you. I know they are, that you're, your visionable people, but just let's cover your, your home life. So yeah. you are actually a dad to two gorgeous little boys, <laughs> River and Rocco. And um, talk to me how that, you know, cause that in itself is a whole journey. You know, you bought, you brought them into this world by surrogacy, um, when you're building your career as a stylist and that's taking up every single hour of the day, talk to me how you then became and the decision to become dads and what, what how has that impacted your life?
1: Well, I think uh, myself and my partner knew from a young age that we wanted to be, like even before each other, we would have known we wanted to be dads. Um, I remember thinking way back when I was sort of early to mid-twenties, I was like, but how am I going to do that? I'm gay. And even though surrogacy was still a thing, I just thought, I'll never be able to afford it. I'll never know how to do it. Where do you start? It's too much. Just give, you know, don't think about it. And me and Stephen talked about it for more or less the first couple of years. But when would it be right? We kind of wanted our careers. Um, It was funny, actually, because a lot of my friends even now are like, oh, but I don't know if it's right for me yet. And I'm like, trust me, it'll never be right for you. You've just got to do it in life. Just live and do the things you want to do. And it took us a good five and a half to six years to actually, from signing up to a surrogacy agency to our boys being delivered. So wow. if we'd known... Five years, yeah. And that was just our journey. And if we'd known it was going to take that long, we would have started earlier. Because, you know, we had this mentality of, we want to be young dads. We want our kids to, you know, have grandkids and we're still young and fresh and not broken bones and old. Um, but, it, you know, I had them, let's say, later in my life. Um, it was the hardest journey, the hardest job because we got so many knockbacks. We did it all through an agency and it's a whole story in itself. Um, we went through five different surrogates the the journey to begin with actually was quite good. It was quite seamless. You sign up, you know, first of all, we explored the globe. You know, should we do it in America? Should we do it here? Should we do it there? But sadly, the first thing is for gay couples, a lot of the world is a no-go zone. So they'll do IVF and, and surrogacy for uh, opposite sex couples, but not gay couples. Then you look at America and it's like, pricey as hell you're talking hundreds of thousands and you can hand pick exactly what you like you know it's genetics on a level for me but we still looked at it because I believe you need to do your research and then we looked at the UK and it just seemed like it had the UK' is a really funny market. I would never put someone off from working a gay couple doing it in the UK because it's worked for us and for many other people. but there's a loophole that scares everyone which is there's a sort of a six-week calling-off period where a surrogate could decide to, you know, hold on to your child or you could decide to not want your child. And it's sort of something that makes no human sense to me. However, it's sort of there. Um, So there's lots of... Let me just say, if anyone that was doing it, read your contracts, understand and find your comfortable space. But our journey, we signed all up. We paid our money to the agency. You know, they searched for the egg donor. Um, yeah, it was hard because you can't see much on an egg donor in the UK. It's just like... A...
0: Oh, so you don't know your egg donor?
1: Well, we do. <laughs> this is very strange. We You get sort of an A4 sheet of paper with just a few facts. Yeah. Um, but our egg donor for us was actually going to be our surrogate. And unfortunately, she couldn't end up being our surrogate, but she was like, have you found your egg donor? This was like on a one-to-one chat with us. And we were like, no. And she was like, well, I'll do that for you. I'd love to do it for you. And literally, we were like, yes, because you're everything. (laughs) Um, And it felt right for us. We kind of had our tick box list. I mean, this is like a sweet shot. When you do surrogacy, it's like, what do you want your child to look like? What characteristics? How tall? How this? is it actually you overthink the system you overthink it um but she became our our egg donor but then our surrogacy search was hard it took about three and a half years and we had four people let us down um we got into ruts where we had people we had one i mean what we thought was a lovely young lady she signed up and we paid her some initial money to come and meet us for travel and for childcare of her own kids. And then she just ghosted us and she just disappeared. And we lost that money. We we got to a point probably three and a half years in, near near the end where we then found ourselves, where we just stopped talking about it. We got to a point where we were just like, let's just stop because it's not good mentally We really struggled, actually, because we thought we'd had this dream and we were used to not getting the things we want, but we're both quite strong-minded and driven, so we were used to going, yeah, of course we can achieve that, we can obtain that. Nothing's out of our reach, but suddenly the one thing that was the most important was out of our reach. And I remember nights where we literally wouldn't speak to each other because the pressure was so high that we then almost lost... It was we were losing a bit of love because it became a chore, and I remember thinking, "We, if we don't stop now, we will have troubles in our relationship." Um, I don't really know how we started up again, but we did, and we found the best couple, the best surrogate ever. She lived all the way down in Exeter, and we were all the way up in, you know, um, at that point we were still in Southeast London, um. And she was like the salt of the earth. She was somebody that I would never meet in life, and she was then became somebody that gave me the greatest gift in life. Uh, we went for a cycle. We we did all the meetings. We were fully connected, um, but we were polar opposites. And I don't mind saying that because I think it's really important. Like her her family and sort of my family and my lifestyle were complete opposites, and it was such a beautiful romance of how. You can meet someone from a different part of life, and you can still have something so strong related related to each other. Um she had her own kids, she already was a surrogate. We sort of agreed at the beginning that you know we just wanted our baby and then you know we didn't need to keep in contact. We didn't want a mum figure, yeah, and that was fine with her. But it was funny, as the journey went on, we were like, how naive of us. Like, why would we want you to not be in our life further? You've just given us, like, the best gift. So we sort of were like, no, we want to stay in touch. We want to, you know, send you pictures. We want you to have Christmas cards. Let's... She's part of a journey. She's part of them, even though she's not part of our kids. Like, I, I believe, uh, both me and my husband, they'll know everything. They'll be had the transparency of this was our journey. This was the egg donor. This was who incubated you for so long. You know, their story is important. I do not want my kids growing up with missing gaps. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Especially if they'll get questioned and everything at school, they want to feel fully like proud and own their journey.
1: We sometimes catch them saying they're three nearly. We sometimes catch them saying, Oh, like because they'll watch something like um, Peppa Pig and there's a mummy and daddy and they'll be like, oh, that's mummy. That's the mummy cow. And I'll be like, it could be the daddy cow as well. It could be a daddy (laughs) and papa cow. (laughs) Like you find yourself going, "Okay, cool. You've taken to mummy and daddy life really well. But I, I just want them to have the power and the comfort in their journey. I mean, they are loved beyond and to sort of go back a few steps when we went through the surrogacy journey and, you know, we tried first and we had a failed pregnancy. It was a knock again because we did it over Zoom and and our surrogate did a pregnancy test and it was like, we were literally like, we are pregnant, like this is done deal. And then nobody sort of warns you that what if it doesn't happen? Yeah. And we all just sort of looked at each other and we were like, okay, bye then. And then me and Stephen had to go off to work and it was almost like, this is really traumatic, yet we've got to carry on. Yeah. Um, that took us a good few months to then get back in the swing of, okay, we'll try yeah. again. But at that point, we were like, well, let's put two embryos in because we can't risk it happening again in our heads. Yeah. But obviously, long and behold, that meant we had twins because they both were successful. And at the scan, it was like, oh, we can see one. We're like, yes, brilliant, one heartbeat. Oh, we're just checking. We're like, just checking. She's like, oh, there's another heartbeat. And we were like, oh, wow. <laughs> I mean,
0: how magical is that, though? And Was there any part of you that thought, oh, there probably will be twins? Or were you just like, just be grateful that one st- sticks?
1: Well, randomly, when you do the insemination, they warned us. Now, you could have one child. You might have twins. Both of the embryos may split. And you could have quads. And I was like, oh, <laughs> cool, let's, um, and you know, you have to actually get that authorised with your surrogate as well. Are you happy to chance carrying twins or more? And our surrogate was so good. She was like, whatever you want, I will be happy to do.
0: Oh my God. What an earth Honestly. angel. I mean, it, literally... it just, it makes me emotional yeah. because, you know, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that for somebody else because, and then does that make you selfish? So, but, what it means is just that level of sacrifice for someone else, knowing that that's not your child, is just, just makes yeah, gives me goosebumps. Know, it's incredible.
1: Of, it makes me a little emotional because I remember, that, like our journey never stopped there. It kind of got a little bit worse before they were born. At 19 weeks, there was a rupture in one of the um, sacks. And we were more or less told, I remember going to the scan by myself with my mum, because Stephen couldn't make it. And it was just supposed to be a routine scan. And th- obviously our surrogate was like, you know, I've been bleeding a bit. And we were like, okay, cool. Let's just keep calm, find out. And they sort of let us know that the the levels had dropped and there was this rupture. And there was a high chance that you'll miscarriage both. Um, or it'd be a stillborn. You would definitely lose one. We were more or less literally told in black and white, oh you're going to lose that one. And you might lose, there's a, there was an 80% chance you'll lose the other one as well as a byproduct of what was happening. And I remember looking at my mum and I was so shocked. And I was a bit like, okay, keep it together because like, yeah, you yeah. know, Stephen's not here. This is like such big news at this part, 19 weeks in when we are literally thinking we're clean sailing. And then this nurse said, and she was so nice. She was like, there's a chance that you're going to be fine and you've got to hold on to that. She's like... He may have said that to you. Maybe he's trying to prepare you, but you know, you hold in. It will be fine. I remember thinking, I don't know if I believe that, but what do you do? Um, and my mum sort of, yeah, we had an emotional moment right at the end when we left, and I did go out thinking, I don't know if I could ever do this again if we if this didn't work. And then we went. So then we had to have scans every week. Um, and by the miracle of God and by the prayers of all of us, our little baby sat on the hole for the duration of the pregnancy. And that is what stopped the miscarriage and stopped the death of our kids. Our little baby boy sat on the hole and that's literally what they said. Yep. You're fine again. The levels weren't rising, liquid levels, but they were like, the hole's not got bigger. And your baby seems to just be put, stand put. And it was literally a miracle. I Amazing. At that point, you know what I did? I gave up everything that was a luxury to me. So I gave up all the foods that I enjoyed, all the drinks I enjoyed. Um, it was during lockdown. I worked out every day and I prayed every night. And I sort of said to myself, I will forsake everything I love. It sort of makes me a little bit emotional because I'm like, I'll give out away everything that is, important to me or that I love to make sure that I give them the chance that they can be born. And I remember thinking, this is so stupid. This isn't gonna work. Like this isn't enough. But I remember thinking if there's a small chance by me sacrificing things that were important and like giving them by God's grace the chance of give me everything. Put everything onto me. Let me burden everything, give them a chance that if it worked, you know, I believe in in what anyone can do, yeah. the strength of anyone. Um, and then they were born, and they were born five weeks premature. So we still were like, okay, the hurdle of that was yeah. we had to rush down to Exeter. It was during lockdown, so we were there for I think three weeks in hospital. Um, no one could visit; it was just us. We we're literally given these babies in incubators and told, "Get on with it." Um, There was a few breathing issues, but we were like, as long as they survive this, then whatever happens in life, we're going to be cool. We can take it all, whatever happens. And that's quite like a personal thing for me. Like, I know Stephen knew about all this, but I've never in my life selfishly gone, I'll give up everything that means something to me for my child to like survive. It's so I weird. think when
0: you feel so hopeless, it's that feeling of everything is out of your control. Yeah. You have nothing but hope. And you're like, what can I, it's like you want to strip yourself bare to show whatever you believe in, universe, God, whoever, that this means everything to me.
1: I know. Come on. And afterwards yeah. it's so, it was hard as well, not hard at the time, but afterwards our surrogate then told us, I didn't want to worry you, but every single week, She was in hospital because she bled every single week of the pregnancy. And And so
0: she didn't tell you that, no?
1: She didn't tell us because she knew, one, we couldn't do anything about it because of COVID. We were stuck. We weren't allowed to go. And that was hard. But two, she knew that it was going to be okay. And she said, if I for one second thought that I worried to the level that you needed to know, I would have let you know. But it it almost made me so insightful that actually, you know, one of our, the sacks ruptured, our surrogate bled every week of the pregnancy and we still have two healthy boys that whatever women go through, it, I mean, it is hardcore what women deal with. And there's always a chance of that positive outcome. People worry about the slight thing that happens during pregnancies, and actually just stick positive and stick with it and believe. And, and hopefully it will always result well.
0: Yeah. What a selfless human she is.
1: Honestly. Amazing. It's the I best just... gift. The best gift. Because I now look at them and think what we went through feels like years ago. Like, of course. And feels like, you know, when they're being naughty and throwing things or like screaming or using each other off eating you kind of forget all that and you're like, shut up, stop. But you're like, you can do that every day of the week because, you know, you're our miracles. Yeah, And I love it. I never think, again, I don't think of us as gay dads with our two little boys. Uh I think of us just as that's our family unit. And some people look at us like, oh, it's two dads. And they don't mean it in a bad way, but they're just like, oh, isn't that cute, two dads with their boys? To me, I don't even... It's so weird. I don't know what I see, but through my eyes, I just see us. It's us. We're just us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's... And that is right. Yeah. To to strip away the labels, strip away the expectations of what we think and feel should be right. So therefore, you are the other side of of that. Yeah. And I think once people do that, and it is the world is 100% shifting, it's not there yet. But... To just be like, allow people to be with no judgment. Yeah. And whoever they want to be, and as long as they're happy, like just let them live in peace.
1: you know, percent. Without a
0: little comments and digs and, oh, you know.
1: But you still, sadly in society and even in fashion, you still see it. It's so blatant. But I take the upper sort of opinion on it of, I don't want to flame that fire. So I'm actually not the person that's going to openly call you out and engage that conversation because I don't have time for that. I have time to celebrate difference and to celebrate individuality and to enhance it more. So it's in your face and you can go and make your decision elsewhere outside of me. And, you know, not everyone agrees with that because some people think you call everything out.
0: Oh, no, no, don't. I don't
1: want you to allow that narrative to ignite again. That's my feelings.
0: Yeah. But also I feel like calling out and all, you know, sometimes for sure. But if you're always like trying to correct people, it's like you're taking on that negative energy from them. You know, like we had a a guy on here um, only a few weeks ago who is sharing his message and it's unbelievable but you know and, and that's his life and that's his drive and i've had so many people message me wanting to further continue the, the conversation that he's having but it's like i'm not that person yeah. i'm the person to elevate people to allow them to speak but just because he's speaking about it doesn't mean that i want to continue that conversation on my next podcast on my next podcast on my next podcast uh-huh. you know like i'm still nicola being nicola doing nicola yeah. i'm not his things but i want people to be pushed to the the top that they can be to deliver their message but it's not my message and i'll stick in my own world of but my that's message. what i
1: love about you and i think that's why i th- we saw sort of gravitate because there's something in somebody that believes in a bigger purpose and mm. a greater strength than what we believe is in us like yeah. you're very driven you're very um i would say embraced in growth and understanding and beginnings and the continued journey the elevated mm-hmm. journey of what you can be even if you don't always believe it and that is why you're successful and that's why i think i'm attracted to successful people and it it can be in daily life it's not about yeah. status in you or know money yeah, no yeah. nothing to do with that it's just no. somebody that even if they're at the bottom of what they deem is, you know, going on for them right now, they dr- they have drive. They have the want and desire to be better yeah. and to achieve and to be role models. I think in life we have to be role models for the younger generation because they're growing up in a very confused world right now. And I thought of it's a weird thing because I look at my kids and I'm like, what? I want my kids, but what have we brought them into? Like when we're gone, what on earth are they going to deal with? Because social media for me is the 50% of good and the 50% toxicity, if I can say that word, Um, because I don't want judgment or them to feel judged for whatever they want to be in life or whatever they choose to put out as their narrative. And that goes for like young kids in my world. They're so colourful. They're so eclectic and whatever they choose to be, like I sort of say to my younger family members, like, you know, you don't have to decide who you are, what you are right now. You don't have to make decisions in life that you're going to need to make when you're 20, 25 live, like live, travel, live, embrace culture, learn about people and don't stay small in your box. Because I think that's what social media can do sometimes. Even though it's a big world, it actually you can find yourself in a small algorithm box. And you're like, I want to learn more. Like, So sometimes you've got to go out face to face. Like this is great because we're still face to face. Like talking to people is so key to me. I say to my team all the time, don't email, don't WhatsApp, call. And if you can't call, I'm not always the best at this, (laughs) but voice note because... When you hear someone's voice, there's a reality in it. There's a warmth in it. There's a person. Yeah. Yeah. I love voice noting. Some of my clients are like, stop voice noting me. (laughs) No, I
0: love it. (laughs) My 20 minute one that I got from you, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to sit down and have a coffee.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But the best is you can put it on double Speed, Speed.
0: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Love it. Oh, my gosh, it has been the biggest pleasure. We could talk for hours, but I want to leave with this final question that I ask every single guest, and that is, what advice would you give to your younger self?
1: Oh, it's the best question, isn't it, in the world? Because with hindsight, we can change so much. I, I would say your ability to not regret is strength, because I believe in life regret means you feel like you've let yourself down. I don't regret one thing and it's a strength that I take with me. But to understand that mental struggles will be part of a journey. And even now at 40, I can struggle mentally like many people do. And I had dark days where I'm like trying to understand why something has affected me and why outside influences make me feel sad about myself or about achieving but I believe in, in every success you're going to have a mental struggle of some level, but to know that you're going to always find a strength to achieve and overcome it and to always not rely on others but to surround yourself with positive energy. Yeah. Because there's been times where I've dragged myself down and it's the energy around me has not been right. And I, I believe in the theory of you don't need to have many friends. I, I've i got three or four friends that are my everything and family. And it's all I need in life. I don't need more, you know. And I would always just say to myself, when you hit those mental blocks, know that that friend is there to support you and to, and it is hard to, it's weird you've asked that question. I'm like, oh, it's such a strange question to ask. And what would I say? Um, but I know that I've hit mental blocks in my life and I like, struggled and it's always been the same people that have like been there always and I kind of know yeah. they could be the same people that will always be there you know mm. and my family are always there my mum my dad are like the biggest rock if I need them at any point <clears throat> during like day or night I can call them and so you know that is kind of in a long-asked way of answering the question, just saying I'd always say to myself, I'm not I'm not fearful of my journey of life, but I would say mentally life is tough and you don't need to always wear armour. You can authentically break down and be human and someone will be there to support you all the time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Vulnerability is connectivity. Yeah. And it is really our superpower. Uh-huh. You know, no one really knows who you are until you're in your most vulnerable, and then they treat, see the true you, and they're like, and that's how you build that like deeper love and deeper connection and deeper understanding. And
1: gosh, I so never thought I'd get, I'm like, cool beans, mister, no stress, chill. Obviously, <laughs> clearly, you know, <laughs> some questions prod that, but yeah, you know, thanks. That is good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, this has been a wonderful interview. I am just, i was so into chat. We could talk for hours. Yeah. Is, we've been talking, recording for an hour and 44 Come minutes. on. <laughs> <laughs> this is the longest ta- chat I've ever had. Yeah. But I'm just, I, <laughs> you are amazing. I am you so are. grateful. And um, just, yeah, so inspirational to whoever listens to this will go, you know, whether you want to be a stylist or not, but it's more so the power of just just as long as you keep going and putting one step in front of the other, mm-hmm. you can't go wrong. And you're going to find people and the circumstances are going to happen to you. that are going to lead you on those journeys and listen to them. Does it feel right? Does that and and your journey in life, in you know, a personal life and your business life yeah. has really shown that. Um, thank you. And
1: take a risk. That's yeah. what I'd say. That's my last point. In life, take a risk. You've got one chance. Risk it all. It's it's life. Yeah. Don't look back.
0: (laughs) You're the best. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.